In the 26th chapter of Acts, Festus had brought Paul before King Agrippa, and uh, Paul makes his defense. Agrippa the king said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Especially, because I, I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Therefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. In that manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. If you knew from the beginning that they would testify. But after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived the Pharisee. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope, take King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible of you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought that with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the things that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even in the strange cities. And he gives his testimony about seeing the light on Damascus Road and being converted. And says in verse 17 that God appeared to him and told him that he would deliver him from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among all them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and of Jerusalem throughout all the coasts of Judea, men to the Gentiles. They should repent and turn to God to do works, meet for repentance. For this cause the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both so small and great, saying none of these things, other things, and those which the prophets and Moses did say should come to pass, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Hester said with a loud voice, Oh, thou art beside thyself. Much learning does make thee mad. He said, I am not mad, most noble Hester, but speak forth with words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak truly. 
I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in the corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophet? I know that thou believest. And Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul said, I would to God, not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and all together such as I am, except for these bonds. Let's have a moment of prayer. Now, Lord, our expectation is quietly looking up. We expect thee to answer, respond, and the fulfill promises made to the fathers, and to the apostles, and to the church fathers, and to us. Lord, Lord blessing others, we believe thou will bless us. We're looking, we're expecting. We want to see a revival that will be a model for the city. That others may come and light their candles at our flame. And other churches may be set aflame. And our own, trusting me for this, this night, may the blessed spirit to testify to Jesus, testify tonight through the word. In Christ's name, amen. Now the text would be Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuaded me to be a Christian. And Paul replied, I would to God that not only thou but also all that hear me this day were both almost and all together such as I am, except for these bones. Now I have taken the time to read in your hearing this story, or rather this sermon of Paul, this defense of Paul before Agrippa. This living human scene here is one of almost ideal beauty and power. It is Paul's testimony before the king. Here was a man in chains, the victim of the spite and the jealousy of certain religious leaders with connections. He was a victim, I say, and he was charged with such a generalized crime that nobody could pin it down twice. And Festus admitted to Agrippa that he didn't know why he had him here. He said, I brought you a prisoner, but I don't know why. But there's nothing really, because they can't make anything stick. He had done no crime, no evil could be found in him. There were robbers skulking about the streets, but he was not a robber. There were murderers whose hands were red with blood. But this man had not murdered. There were traitors who had sold out their country for money. This man of God was true to his country. There were evil men of every sort, arsonists, 
been rapists, but not one thing did they bring against this man. Not one voice cried any of these evils against the man Paul. But nevertheless, he stands in chains and makes his defense. And there is security here and excellence all over the whole scene. The bearing of the man, even in spite of his chains. And his attitude toward God and the scriptures and the people and the king and the man who brought him in chains. That's it. And the language he used, the elegance of it, and the modesty, and the boldness, and the entire argument is sound and learned and frank and direct. Now the substance of his testimony is that he'd been always a strict religious Jew, deeply schooled in the Old Testament scriptures and following the straightest sect, which was the Pharisee sect, of the Jews. And he had followed his Jewish religion straight into the arms of Jesus Christ. This, incidentally, is what we must tell all of our Jewish friends. If they say to us, do you want me to change my religion? Our proper reply is, no, by no means. We do not want you to change your religion. We want you to follow your religion to its conclusion. And if you follow your Jewish religion to its conclusion, you follow it straight into the arms of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Now this is what Paul said. He said he had not forsaken his Jewish faith, but fulfilled it. And he had fulfilled the very religion his accusers claimed to believe and didn't. He admitted that at first his blindness, in his blindness, he had persecuted Christians. But he said he had met Christ on the road to Damascus and become convinced. And since then he had gone everywhere and that he hadn't made up a thing, and he hadn't invented anything, and he hadn't claimed any new revelation or any new religion at all. He claimed only that he had taken the step on further than the rest of these Jews had, straight into the arms of the Messiah, because the Old Testament, which they believed, thought that the Redeemer should suffer and die and rise again to be the light of all nations. And this is the reason for his change, he Now, Agrippa was deeply moved. There's no question about that. Paul had indirectly set forth in his hearing a powerful proof of the Christian faith. And whatever is a proof of the Christian faith is also a reason why Agrippa and everyone else should turn to Christ and believe it, the gospel, and believe in Christ. And Agrippa said, now I know the translators have a field day with this, but there's no good reason to change it from what it stands here. Almost thou persuadest me. Do you think Paul has said that in this brief 
determined you can change me and come close to it. But almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. And the reply of Paul was noble and beautiful. He said, King, I wish that you and all these others, Festus over here, most noble Festus. And these soldiers have put the chains on me and led me in here. And every one of you retainers and courtiers and everyone in all of you, I wish that you were not all most, but all together, such a one as I am. And then with a smile, he said, accept it, please. I wouldn't want you to be in chains. So we have here the way one man got out of becoming a Christian. It was by the use of the word almost. <clears throat> now, to make you see that almost is not enough, I want to lay before you a little illustration. A contractor puts on him the responsibility of building a bridge. And he builds that bridge over a great rushing sea far below. And it's a long bridge. He runs the great girders and the great coast clear down into the rocks below. And he builds and builds out from one end, one side of the river bank, and he builds it on out to within 20 feet of the other side of the river. And then he stops. And one night a man comes along driving in the rain and in the darkness seeing the bridge ahead of him and seeing the highway without markers or without signs forbidding. He drives with his family, his mother with the baby, sleeping in a lap on the back seat, a little boy and a little girl sitting off to his right. He driving in the rain and the darkness and the storm comes onto this bridge. And at a reasonable rate of speed, he travels on across his headlights showing the bank of the river beyond the great rock. But what it can't show him because of its direction is that that bridge has never been finished. It lacks 20 feet of connecting with the other shore. So he drives this car with his two sleeping children beside him and his wife and baby in the back seat, back seat, straight over that end into the roaring waters below, which smashes it all up, and all die together. A good bridge, a strong bridge, a worthy bridge, but it wasn't long enough. It stopped short of safety, the other side of the river. And the man and his family perished because they trusted to a short bridge. 
It didn't write for me. Now that is what exactly happened to the man of Britain. He said to Paul, this is a powerful argument you have brought to me. And I, he said, am familiar, as Paul had admitted he was, with the teachings of the prophets, and my position makes me head over all the synagogues. And I know a good deal of the law and the prophets. Much that is written there is familiar to me. And you almost persuade me to be a Christian. But he was driving on a short bridge. I don't know how far he went. I cannot read the mind of the man, and all I know is what he said. And I dare not read into what he said any more than is legitimately and properly there. But I do know that the bridge was too short. And I do know that there is no place in the scripture that says King Agrippa was ever saved. King Agrippa never joined any church, never was baptized, never showed himself to be a Christian, never witnessed before the company, never joined the fellowship of the church. He wanted to, and he said, you almost do it, Paul, but he didn't yield. And so the man, a man here, Agrippa, before the man of God who preached to him, underwent an experience, all taking place quietly within him. The only thing emotional or dramatic was that tremendous defense by the manacled man of God. But Agrippa took it calmly. He was a king, and so he had to act like a king. It wouldn't do for royalty to sob or loosen toes. He had to be poised and control himself, and he did. But this man underwent an experience comparable to shipwreck, or to earthquake, or to fire, or to flood, or volcanic eruption. So this man was wiped out forever. Wiped out at one stroke, all his immortal dreams and hopes, for Romans dreamed and hoped, as well as Jews and Canadians and Americans and Irish people, were all alike, and rivers and seas and borders don't change it. We dream and we hope, and this Roman dreamed and hoped, it's Roman, but he didn't dream enough, and his hopes were defeated, and he brought calamity on himself. Blindly, he drove over a bridge that didn't reach the other side. Now, he was only one. There may be those here tonight who are certainly doing what he did. Take that man tried for murder. He's charged with capital murder, brought up for trial. The jury is chosen, and the testimony is taken. The defense and the prosecution, crown, I think they would say here, sum up, and then the judge gives his charge. 
and jury trials out. And the man who's charged with murder sits and waits, tries to be flippant about it, but his roving eyes and the sweat on his forehead and nose and neck give him away. Twelve persons beyond that door are deciding whether this man is guilty capital murder. In back of that door, the jurors debate. They go over the testimony they're corrected by the head jurors. Then they change their mind. They take ballot after ballot. One man holds out. He's not sure beyond a reasonable doubt. Then they say, let us hear the evidence again, the testimony. They go over it again. And this man nods and says, I guess I was wrong. It does look as if there was no reasonable doubt. All right, says the phone. Let's vote again. Here sits the man on the other side of the door, wiping his forehead every once in a while and making sick jokes with his lawyer, trying to hide the terror in his heart. The vote's taken. The file back in. The judge says, gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? Foreman rises and says, we have, Your Honor. What is your verdict? We find the defendant guilty as charged and offer no recommendation and mercy. So I scream at his side in the Old Mother bows her head and grief is too deep and awful for tears. This man almost got off. Almost. But they appealed. And they carried upwards. Carry this illustration through. I'd have to go back down across the border because to tell you the truth, I don't know who has the final authority here, but a governor has. You say, who say the governor? You know who it is here, and I don't. That's my ignorance. But whoever it is, brought before him. Yes, he says, I'll take that. I'll look at that case. I understand there were some doubts about it. So long after his wife has gone to bed and his children are asleep, the radio's turned off and everything's turned off, and even the dog is slumbering. In the box in the corner. And traffic quiets outside on the street. The hours pass. This man that we elect so carelessly, I think we've done him a favor. On his shoulders, his lone shoulders, rests the light of a man made in God's image, a young man. A man who could normally live 50 years yet. And he reads the testimony, and he says, I'm going to commute this sentence. There's doubts here. I'm going, there are doubts here. I'm going to commute this sentence. And if the young man could hear it back where he is, he'd smile and have hope. And then the great man reads another page, shakes his head and says, no, this is 
So he steps to the phone and sends a telegram. Here is Jesus' mercy. And they lead the young man out. And he goes up those steps and drops eight feet to the end of the road. He almost lived, but he died. I think of the little girl lost in the storm. This happens often out on the west and out in the far northern central states. Little girl coming home from school. No storm and evidence. No warning. He trudges along with her little snowsuit and her little red boots. So proudly with her. Books under her arm. And suddenly that thing they call the Norwester sweeps down. And immediately nobody can see anywhere. Nobody. Couldn't, you couldn't find your way with a compass. And the wind whips out of nowhere and begins to blow that snow. Cars come to a halt. Cattle turn their backs to the wind. And the little girl loses her direction and begins to wander. Within three minutes, the little road ahead is all gone. She knew well how to get home to Mommy, but it's all white now. And she doesn't know which way to go, but she keeps up her little brave spirit the best she can and wanders on, stumbling through the deepening snow till she falls. And after the storm is over, and the next day, the searching parties have been out, they see a little mound ten feet from her own door. Almost, she slept under warm blankets that night. Almost wasn't enough. The bridge was too short. Loving hands and with cheerful faces, they gather up the darling little thing and carry in. Almost slept in a little warm bed. But instead of that, she slept under the cold blanket of snow. I think of Judas's chariot. Judas's chariot many times debated with himself about Jesus. For the real opinion of, G of Judas, the, G the Judas had of Jesus came out at the end when he cried out, I have betrayed a just man, and he committed suicide out of remorse. So Judas had loved Jesus, he could help it. But he loved money too. He was a thief and he kept the bag. And there were natural and simple reasons why he should not be a Christian. There must have been moments when Judas almost turned to Christ. There were times when as he lay and heard the quiet, soft breathing of those men around him. Under the trees there as Jesus traveled with his little crowd from city to city to other cities also that he might win some. Judas woke and looked up and saw the stars and some a little bit of the streak of good that's in every man along with all the evil that damned very likely waked, and Judas reached down and felt that lump there that was the bag that kept the money that he had stolen, out of which he had stolen. 
There must have been tender times when Jesus said to himself, soon this morning in Jesus' way, I'm going to crawl over beside him and whisper in his ear the awful story. I know you'll forgive me, and I know you'll give me another start. I've been a dirty thief. A dirty thief. And he lay there in the darkness and listened to the breathing and sound of the night birds. He almost became St. Judas that night. Over there around beside him lay the man who was recalled St. Andrew. St. Peter was there, and St. John was there. The saints were all about him there, they didn't know, but later they became saints this and saints that. And he almost became St. Judas. Or if he had gone crawling on his knees across and touched Jesus on his shoulder and Christ had wakened and shook his head and smiled at Judas and Judas had poured into his tender ear the story of betrayal and deception and dishonesty and thievery, Christ would have said, go and sin no more. And Judas would have been on the way to be called St. Judas. He almost did it. You can read that out of what he did. But he died with a curse on his head. Almost wasn't enough. The bridge was too short. And I think of the living dead. Toronto is a beautiful city. I've always said that. Always thought that. Before I ever came here. I thought this city was one of the most attractive cities that on this continent. I still think so. But you know there are many of the living dead around there. Not all down in Skid Row. They're not all down in the Victor, whatever it is, mission. Not all down at Harbor Light Mission. No, no. They're not all down in those houses we don't talk about in mixed companies. Not all there. No, no. Out here, fine big homes. There's big cars sitting out in front. There are men and women dead inside, disillusioned, embittered, defeated, lost. They'll go down one at a time like the great trees on the mountain that have been eaten by termites until they're hollow shells. On the outside they look all right, but inside they're rotten, and when there's nothing left but the thin shell, just a wind comes and down they go, and dust flies as the tree breaks apart and breaks the pieces I've seen. Breaks all the pieces because of dry dust inside. There are many of them out here. Some of them have shelter. Tomorrow morning, They'll get in a car as long as one of these tools. The uniformed man up in front, he'll drive him down to the precinct and he'll vote. Or she'll vote. And when people see them sweep in, they stand respectfully and say, did you know that so-and-so voted here today? Yes. But disillusioned, embittered, Staying together only because they don't want the disgrace of having divorced and going apart. 
Or if they're younger, staying together because there are children and they love the children and they don't want to leave them. Keeping up a front, but I say, repeat it. Those same people maybe long ago once stood near the door of the kingdom, maybe back in Alberta, maybe back in British Columbia, or out in Nova Scotia, or down in one of the states. Those same people, before the big cars could be afforded, they had gone to old-fashioned meetings and heard them sing old-fashioned songs. And the preacher, whose grammar might not have been the best, he might have been a little bit emotional, but he was preaching the word nevertheless, gave the invitation, and the young wife held her too hard. She wanted to go, and her husband clapped a great hand over her and said, now don't be foolish. And she shook herself and got control, and pretty soon the meeting was over. They were on their way back home. Nothing was said. They were both embarrassed. But she'd almost been saved that night. Almost wasn't enough. The bridge was too short. All about it, sir. Businessmen, politicians. There'll be men tomorrow night with their ears glued to the radio or the TV or down at some political center, eagerly watching charts and graphs and Wondering, don't take this political now, because I don't know one part of Manila, but a lot of those men whose pictures appear around here, if you knew the facts about them, they died a long time ago. They're still interested in politics, and they're still interested in their country, and we give them honor for that. But I think most of them are more interested in themselves. But they haven't got a thing yet, not a thing. Or an outward check. There may be some that are otherwise. I hope they're the ones that are elected into them. But, uh, a lot of them, a lot of men down here at the stock exchange, a lot of men who sell and buy real estate, teachers who have little and come in and they smile that waxy smile. They've been smiling for 30 years. You say, now, children, same old thing, class after class for 30 years. Long ago they've gone too. Years ago they stood at a little church, heard the singing, didn't go in, or they went in, they didn't hear. And lastly, I believe in hell. I don't preach very much about hell. I don't like to preach about hell. The old Moody said no man ought to preach about hell except he preaches with tears in his eyes. And I never feel good when a man rises, clenches his fist, grinds his teeth, and screams at his audience that they're going to hell. I don't like that. It would be to me like going to death row and sing, sing, prison and screaming at all of those men that they were going to be executed. They are, but I'd hate to say that to them. So I don't say much about hell, but I believe in hell. I believe in it as surely as I believe in heaven above or earth beneath. I believe there's a place where God puts people that won't go where God is. Those who would not by life while they were on earth, or at the time of death even, they would not turn to Christ. So there are men in hell, a lot of them.
and women. God forgive me, but there are women there too. Beautiful young women. Strong young men they were while they lived, but they're there. A man there, he heard a thousand sermons. He wasn't raised in the saloon. He was not a habitual of the saloon in the dens of vice. He was brought up in the better part of Toronto, or Montreal, or Toledo, or London, or Berlin. He knows the way. He knew the way. And if you could get to him now, he could recite it for you. For I think there are as many people who know about Scripture in hell as there are who know Scripture on earth. He knows scores of Bible verses. He learned them when he was a little boy in Sunday school back in Ontario. He even planned and promised and said to himself, after the lights were out and things were quiet many nights, he said, tomorrow morning I'm going down and tell Mom that I want to be a Christian. Tomorrow I'm going down and tell her. But he didn't. When the light came, he wasn't scared anymore. And some boy yelled, and he dressed in a hurry and grabbed his breakfast and disappeared. Went from bad to worse, and now he's yeah. He almost became a missionary. He almost became a strong director, a strong leader, a pastor. But he's in hell now. All I'm trying to say to you tonight is that almost isn't enough. The bridge is too short. It looks all right. It takes you a while. But it doesn't reach the other shore. You're going to have to make it all together. He said, Paul said, I wish that you were not almost, but all together. What about you? You're here. Some of you almost yielded yourself to God and got filled with the Holy Ghost and helped start a revival in it, Toronto. But your carnal flesh got the better of it. Almost wasn't enough. It didn't reach the land of brightness and glory. Some of you have drifted away from him and backslidden. Your business got in your way. You used to have family prayer, but you haven't had family prayer for years. You haven't got the courage. One day you read a book or you heard a testimony or you heard a sermon and you said to yourself, I'm going home and tell my wife tomorrow morning we begin family prayer. Almost did it. But when you got up the next morning, your wife was a little bit grouchy. You were hurried. Breakfast was late. You sulkily left the place and there was no family prayer. You almost had family prayer, but you didn't have it. You work with somebody and you say, I'm going to witness to that person. I'm going to tell them that Jesus died for them. You mean well, but you didn't do it. You almost did it, but you didn't do it. Almost is a short break, isn't enough. Some of you have said, now, I've had a bad year. But I remember Bob Eternal and many others that I've heard about say that if nine-tenths goes further than ten-tenths, and I'm going to tie this year, I go to the poor. I'm going to start this year. You almost did it, too. 
what you didn't do. If you did, you give a ragged ring, you don't know where you are. You almost did it, but you didn't do it. Almost didn't enough. Somebody says, I'm going to start my prayer every day, I'm going to pray, I'm going to wait on God, I'm going to take some time before God, no matter what. You meant well, but you didn't do it. Almost, but not altogether. Some of you that are not yourselves now, born of the Spirit and washed in the blood, you said, how many times I'm going to, I mean to, I want to, I intend to, but you haven't. The bridge is short. Almost isn't sufficient. I tell you, dear friends, tonight here's a great story about a great man. And the greater God Almighty has put it here for your instruction. And the voice of the Lord Jesus is calling, I would that thou art not almost, but all together. What about it? Are you going to get old and weary and tired and hollow? Let life defeat you and beat you down and wear you out? Almost. Then you could be all together, one. We're going to sing a song. I happen to think it's one of the sweetest songs that we have. Not wouldn't be called a great song. I've never seen it listed among the great songs. But it is a sweet song and a good song. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And while we're singing it, we're going to stand. Brother McNally will lead us in the first couple of stanzas. And I want you to sing. And just as soon as we begin to sing, I want those of you who are going to say, not all most tonight, but if God will help me, it'll be all together. I want you to come down here to the front and stand a little later. We'll go together into the, into the chapel. Now, in that chapel last week, we had 32 persons there. Some of them came to pray, but most of them were there for themselves. And there were tears and confessions and wonderful blessings. From what I can understand, it showed up Wednesday night in your family. And it'll continue to show up. God did it last week. He can do it this week. And I invite you to come. First, come just come down here quietly and stand. And then we're going to gather into the chapel. All right?